Good morning. We're uh, finishing out First Peter today, so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to First Peter. We've uh, we've been in First Peter for a while, and um, I've enjoyed it. I hope you guys have too. It's been a good good study and an apt message for just the time that we're in right now. And Peter has been encouraging believers in the midst of uh, suffering. Uh, and we've kind of distinguished some, some different kinds of suffering. So, so one, there's suffering that comes with just being in a world filled with sin, things like death and disease that we don't have any control over, things that, that happen you know, kind of to everybody. Um, and then uh, Peter's also been talking about uh, another kind of suffering, persecution, uh, the uh, type of suffering that we do have a little bit of control over, uh, that if we would just kind of tone down our, our gospel speak, that maybe we wouldn't be persecuted. And Peter has been encouraging believers uh, in these things, in the suffering. Sufferings uh, that this life brings uh, between now and the time that we get to meet Christ face to face. And he's encouraged us to continue believing the gospel, to continue uh, to stand firm, to continue um, to speak uh, the message that we've been given to speak into uh, a world that so desperately needs it. And I don't know about you, but it seems like just as time goes on and on, it just becomes more and more apparent uh, the need that the world has for the message of the gospel, uh, the need that the world has to be redeemed from the mess that we've created. Uh, And the only way that's going to happen is that if we look to Christ. And so we're picking up today in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in uh, verse 8. And starting in verse 8, Peter says this. He says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we'll stop there for just a moment. And so just on the heels of um, talking about being humble and being under the mighty hand of God, um, casting all your cares and your anxieties on him, he gives us his encouragement to be sober-minded. This isn't the first time in Peter's letter that he said this. Uh, Back in chapter 1, in verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. And then he tells us what being sober-minded looks like. He says, To set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. And so we get this idea of what Peter means. So at the beginning of the letter, he says, be sober-minded. At the end of the letter, he reminds us, be sober-minded, right? And we get this glimpse of what it means to be sober-minded, that we would set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we're not focusing so much on the sufferings that we experience here and now, but we're looking at what those sufferings ultimately will lead us to. And for the Christian, that leads us to eternity face to face with our creator and that's that's a beautiful thing and peter reminds us think about that focus on that as you go through the sufferings of this life the sufferings that you don't have control of and the sufferings that you do have control of to set your mind and set your hope fully on the grace of christ and there's a reason that he tells us to be sober-minded and to be watchful and it's because we have an adversary now what comes to your mind when you think of your adversary For some of you, maybe your neighbor comes to mind. Maybe you don't have a great neighbor and they're your adversary. For some of you, maybe it's a a family member or your in-laws that come to mind when you think of your adversaries. For some of you, maybe uh, it's a sibling who is your adversary or a co-worker who's your adversary. Peter reminds us that we have an adversary and it's none of those people. 
right? Maybe you even think of people who uh, have a different political affiliation as you, uh, as your adversary. And Peter tells us that those people are not your adversary. You have one adversary, and it's the devil, right? And he has one job. And his one job that the devil has is to prowl around like a roaring lion, right? That's a sobering picture. I saw a video on YouTube this week. I think it was an older video, but it was this guy on an African safari on a lion hunt. And he comes like literally face to face. This lion is like from me to Brent away from him. And he pulls out his gun and he shoots and it didn't kill the lion. And the lion just pounced him. I mean, it was brutal, right? This is the picture that Peter is giving us of our adversary, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking out somebody that he can destroy. And so this call to sober-mindedness comes with this warning of the, that you have an adversary who can beat you. You have an adversary who's stronger than you. You have an adversary who's smarter than you, who can outthink you and outwit you and cause you to do things that you would never thought that you would do. That's our adversary. He's seeking to devour you. So that's the bad news. The good news in this is that, that he can be resisted, but it's not in our own strength. Right? He says, resist him firm in your faith. Right? The one way that we can come against our adversary, the devil, is not because I'm strong enough or you're strong enough, not because I can outthink him, but firm in our faith. In other words, um, casting our hope fully on Christ as we've already been encouraged to do. James, you might remember from our study in James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, says it this way. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Right? So in our resisting of the devil, the only way that we can do this is by drawing near to God, submitting to God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 would put it this way. Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So Peter and Paul and James all calling us to stand firm, to draw near to God, to be firm in our faith as the tactic that is effective in resisting the devil, resisting our adversary who's trying to kill us. And Paul in his call reminds us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our adversaries are not necessarily the things or the people that we can see. Right? Our adversaries are not necessarily who sits in the White House or who has political power. Our adversaries aren't necessarily the people that rub us the wrong way. Our adversary is someone that we can't see who's not face-to-face -face in front of us. And our wrestle is not a physical wrestle against people. Our adversaries are not people that think differently than us. Our adversary is one that we can't see and we wrestle against the powers and the rulers and the authorities over this present darkness, right? The, the devil has the world duped and he is our adversary. Therefore, according to Paul, we have to take up the full armor of God. God gives us this ability to resist the devil. And then Peter reminds us that these sufferings that we experience in verse 9 that are being experienced by our brotherhood or our sisterhood, our family of faith, you might say, throughout the world. And so your suffering is not unique to you. 
your persecution is not unique to you. And we, we've talked about in, in uh, our study in First Peter how you know, our speaking the gospel to a hostile world brings necessarily persecution into our lives. And we do that intentionally knowing that's going to come. But that's not unique to us. There, there are people throughout the world that suffer far worse than we suffer. Right? What's the worst thing that we're going to suffer in America because we won't stop speaking about Christ? People might think we're weird. That's probably the worst, at least for now, it's the worst thing that we're going to suffer. Right? Maybe you're going to get alienated by a neighbor or a family member. But there are people all over the world who are suffering for the cause of Christ, undergoing physical torture. Right? Being, being alienated from their families in a way where their families don't provide for them anymore because of their allegiance to Christ. Those things happen throughout the world. Those things aren't happening here where we live. Hopefully they, they may never happen here where we live. I, I don't know. We're not guaranteed that they won't. But, but just know that, that as much as we think that we suffer here in Western culture, people throughout the world suffer far worse than we do for the cause of Christ. And, and as I talked about a couple of weeks ago, there is no more compelling story in the world than somebody who's willing to suffer for their cause. It's every movie that you love. Hollywood is in business because of the stories of people suffering for their cause and how compelling those things are. Right? And if we want to draw people to Christ, one of the ways that we do that is that we're willing to suffer for our cause because our hope is set not in this world and not the things that this world has to offer, but because our hope is set fully on Christ and what's going to be revealed to us when the day comes. And so Peter's call in these verses is to, to pay attention to your adversary. Be watchful, be mindful that, that your adversary exists and that he wants to destroy you. And that we can resist him and that the way that we resist him is by standing firm in our faith and drawing near to God, setting our hope fully on Christ. So in those verses we say, devil bad. Verse 10. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, a few verses back, we talked about where, where Peter said that, that um, after you have suffered according to God's will, right? Those are two, a word and a phrase that we don't typically put together, suffering and according to God's will. But Peter reminds us that our suffering as Christians is according to God's will, right? Romans eight twenty eight tells us that if two things are true, that if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, that everything works together for your good, which includes your suffering, which includes your persecution, which includes your difficulties. So suffering is under the watchful eye of, of the God who controls everything in the entirety of the universe, everywhere, all of the time. And here Peter says again, after you have suffered a little while. Suffering sometimes when we're in the thick of it seems to never end, does it not? We, we don't often think that, that we suffer for a little while. We think that, that our suffering, like it feels like a long time. And, and some of you have suffered things a long time. Right, Peter says, after you suffered a little while, and he's giving us this reminder that, that whatever time we have on this earth, our 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, right, if you're, if you're fortunate, it's just a little while. It might be a long time to us, but in the, the scope of eternity, the time that we have on this earth, it's just a little while. It's just a little while. And we, we have a hard time grasping eternity because we're finite beings and we can't fully wrap our minds around the infinite. It's, just, it's an impossible task, right? We, we cannot do it. 
And, and so when we think of eternity, it, it kind of blows our mind because we just aren't able to fathom fully what eternity is. But God is eternal. God has always been and will always be, has always existed, will, is never going to go away. Right? Has existed, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in eternity. And in that context of things, the suffering that we go through in this life, it's just a little while. And as people who have their hope fully set up on Christ, we can look to that time to come when all of the wrongs are going to be made right. All of our tears are going to be wiped away. All of the sufferings are going to be maybe not even a distant memory at that point, right? So after we've suffered a little while, Peter is telling us there's going to come a day when our suffering will cease. Even though it may not feel like that, there's going to come a day when our suffering will come to an end. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Can, can you wait for that day to come? The God of all grace, not, not the God of, of a little bit of grace, not the God of some grace, not even the God of most grace, but the God of all grace. And this is another one of those things we, we, we can't really fathom grace to, to its fullest extent because it, it kind of messes with our mind. Grace is unmerited favor. God doing for us something that we don't deserve and that we can't earn. Right? We, we struggle with that, especially as, as Westerners, because we, we like to earn things. We like to deserve things. Right? I've never wanted anything so bad until you tell me that I can't have it and that I'm going to work hard to get it just because you said I couldn't do it. That's the way that we're wired. And when God comes to us with this offer of grace and says, Here, here's salvation, here's a relationship with me, and it's not because of anything you've done, not because of anything that you deserve, not because of anything you've earned, but simply because I love you and I want to know you and I want you to know me, that kind of offends us a little bit. It offends our Western wired brains. It says, well, I got to do something in return. I got to do something to deserve it. I got to do something to earn it. You ever been out to dinner with somebody else and, and you haggle over who's going to pay the check? That, that's, that's our struggle with grace. When somebody says, I got it, it's like, no, 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 I got it. No, no, it's me. I got it. No, I got it. Well, I'll get it next time. Right? That grace offends us when we give, we're given unmerited favor. And Peter reminds us of the graciousness of God in the context of this suffering that's only going to last a little while. Again, things that we might not put together, suffering and, and the graciousness of God. We, we wouldn't put those in the same sentence, but Peter does. Peter puts these in the same thought. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. Why is it and how is it that God is gracious? Well, Peter tells us. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. That's the graciousness of God, that, that God would, would reach down to sinful, rebellious humanity and say, here's a relationship with me. I'm calling you into my eternal glory. This is purely the graciousness of God. We don't deserve it. Right? Back all the way up, I, I do this a lot, but back all the way up to, to Genesis in the beginning when God created Adam and Eve. Creation for a time was in perfect harmony with the Creator until the creation willfully rebelled against its Creator. Right, and, and so sin entered the world through that act. And God in that moment, instead of getting mad and saying, I'm just going to like wipe the slate clean and start over, God didn't do that. God graciously 
reached out to his sinful, rebellious people, Adam and Eve, and told them that there's going to come a day, like we, we see the, a prophecy of Christ in the book of Genesis chapter 3, that, that one day that God is going to redeem all of the things, all of the dominoes that started to fall when sin entered the world in Genesis, that, that God was going to redeem all of those things. God's graciousness being demonstrated at the outset of the Bible. And not only is God calling us into his eternal glory, he's also going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Think about those words. Restoration, he's going to fix the things that were broken. Confirmation, that, that God, God loves you. God loves even sinful humanity. God has a love for us. He's going to strengthen us. In other words, he's going to give us what we need in order to re resist the schemes of the devil. And he's going to establish you as his child if you put your trust in him, if you put your faith in him. These are gracious acts of God that we can't earn and that we don't deserve. This is what the God of all grace does. This is for our finite minds what Peter is giving us, what it means that God is the God of all grace. Restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing sinful humanity making all of the wrong things right when that day comes. Now, it's interesting that Peter is writing this because I don't know if you know much about Peter. But Peter knows something about these things. Peter knows something about the adversary, the devil, and Peter knows something about being restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. You might remember in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, Jesus speaking to Peter in verse 31 says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And if you know the story, this was when Jesus was arrested and, and taken to the cross and his disciples were um, waiting to see what was going to happen after Jesus arrest and, and Peter was standing by a fire and people came to Peter and said hey aren't you with Jesus don't you know him and Peter said I don't know the guy just just moments after Peter saying that, that I'll go to death for you right later that day I don't know the guy someone else asked him hey aren't you aren't you one of Jesus followers never heard of the guy Another person, hey, aren't you with him? Nope, don't know him. The guy that in the morning was like, I'll go to death for you. And in the evening was like, I've never even heard of this guy. Don't associate me with him, right? So, so this is Jesus giving Peter a warning that Satan has demanded to sift you. The lion is prowling for you, Peter, and he's out to destroy you. And Peter was not watchful. And Peter was not sober-minded. And what happened? He got pounced. He got pounced by the lion, So Peter knows when, when he says that you have an adversary that's out to destroy you, Peter knows, right? Because Peter was destroyed by the adversary. But Peter also knows what it is to be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established. In John chapter 21, uh, we won't read the, the whole chapter, but Peter and, and some of the guys were out fishing. This was after Jesus had died. Peter and some of the guys were out fishing, and it was just a bad day out on the lake. They weren't catching any fish. Uh, they were throwing the nets in the water and pulling the nets up empty. And this guy from the shore says, hey, try throwing your net on the other side of the boat. 
right? You ever had anybody try to tell you how to fish, right? It's kind of an annoying thing. And, and so they threw the net on the other side of the boat, and lo and behold, what happens? The nets were full of fish. They pulled them up, and then they, they had a catch. They hadn't caught anything all day, and finally at this advice of you know some armchair quarterback on the beach, it worked. And Peter recognizes in the moment, like, that's Jesus. And Peter, being the guy that Peter is, like just strips down and jumps into the water and swims to the shore, doesn't even wait for the boat to make it to the shore. He swims to the shore because he was so excited that it was Jesus. And Jesus was there and had a fire going, and he was making some breakfast. And we're told in John 21, it says, When they had finished breakfast, that Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Then feed my lambs. And Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So this cool scene of Peter on the beach with Jesus. Now, if I'm Jesus, and I'm like, if I'm in his place and I'm making, I probably won't even make breakfast for Peter to begin with. But, but when Peter gets up on the beach, I might say, hey, Peter, what happened back there? You remember that time that, that you said you would die for me and then later in the day you, you claim not to know me? Can we talk about that? If I'm Jesus, I'd have some things to say. I'd probably be offended. Right? I'd, 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 wanna, I'd want Peter to apologize. I'd want him to beg for my forgiveness. Right? This is me. Probably you too. Jesus doesn't do that. The, the God of all grace, right? the God of all grace is making breakfast for the guy that blew it big time. And he doesn't even ask him about it. He doesn't ask him, hey, what happened back there? He, he doesn't do that. He just simply asks him, Peter, do you love me? And, and he takes Peter at his word. Peter, of course, of course, Lord, I love you. Really? Like, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. Okay. Feed my sheep and follow me. The God of all grace, extending some graciousness to a guy that, that you and I probably wouldn't be all that gracious towards. So when, when Peter tells us that we have an adversary, the devil, that's seeking to destroy you, he, he's been there. He knows what that's about. And when he says on the heels of that, that the God of all grace will restore you, will strengthen you, will confirm you, will establish you, Peter knows that too because he's been there. This is what Jesus has done for him. And that's why Peter can say in verse 11 of 1 Peter 5, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To the God of all grace, be the dominion, be the power, be the glory forever and ever in eternity. Amen. Peter knows. Devil bad, God good, right? I mean, it's just the simple, <laughs> making it real succinct. Devil bad, God good. Pay attention to these things. 
Then in verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so Peter, closing out his letter, likely delivered by Silvanus. That's probably what that's a reference to. And, and that might actually be Silas, the Silas of the Bible, that you know, Paul and Silas, probably another name for Silas. But whoever it is, a faithful brother, has delivered this letter. And Peter says he's written briefly, exhorting and declaring the grace of God. Again, this, this whole letter is about suffering and persecution. And Peter's saying that the point that I'm trying to make to you in this letter is that God is gracious. This is the grace of God that we would even get to suffer for him is his grace. That we would suffer for a cause that would compel people to come to know Christ because of our suffering. That's the graciousness of God. And then he says at the end of verse 12, stand firm in it. Stand firm in the graciousness of God. Don't waver in the graciousness of God, right? We, we're people that, that our faith wavers, right? Peter's faith wavered, right? Peter in one breath, I'll die for you. And then in another breath, I don't even know the guy. Like his faith wavered, right? What does that mean for you and me? It means our faith wavers as well, right? But Peter's reminding us to stand firm, not even in our faith, but to stand firm in the graciousness of God. And it's by the grace of God that we even have faith to begin with. Right? We're, we're saved by grace through faith. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 would put it this way. He says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared for us beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? What, what, what do you contribute to any of that that I just read? Nothing. I don't contribute anything to it either. Right? We contribute the mess that needs to be fixed, and that's about it. We contribute the sin that's the problem, but that, that's all that we contribute. God, because he's rich in mercy and because he's loved us with so great of a love that even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were caught up in sin, even when we were being sifted like wheat, like Peter, even when we were being pounced on by our adversary, the roaring lion who's trying to kill us, even in that moment, God made us alive together with Christ, right? I can't make anybody alive. You can't make it like we can't bring people back from the dead. The Apostle Paul reminds us that when we were dead in our sin, when we were fully pounced on and fully prowled on by the roaring lion, that it was God who made us together alive with Christ as an act of his grace, all the God of all grace. He saved us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, not even because he took pity on us, but because he loved us with such a great love that he went so far as to give his one and only son so that if we would just simply believe in him, that we would have life, that we would have eternal life. 
And if that's not enough, according to the Apostle Paul, but in the coming ages, in other words, from now through eternity, which goes forever and ever and ever, through eternity, that he's going to show his immeasurable riches in kindness towards us in Christ. This is the hope that Peter is calling us to look to, not the here and the now. And he reminds us that all of this is not because of you, not because you're great, not because you're awesome, but because God is great and because God is awesome. And he's prepared these good works for us beforehand. Well, before what? Before the foundations of the earth were laid, God prepared our suffering for us. That's a tough pill to swallow. God prepared these good works of suffering for the cause of Christ. He prepared those for us. And the Apostle Paul is telling us we ought to walk in them. We ought to walk in them as a testimony, not of our strength, not of our grit, but as a testimony to the God of all grace and what he's done for us. Because remember, Jesus suffered so that you and I would come to know him. Jesus suffered an unjust death at the hands of the people that he created, adding insult to injury, so that you and I could come to know the God of all grace. And so it would make sense that the followers of Christ would suffer like their Savior so that others would come to know Christ. These are some good works, the Bible tells us. Good works. Right? We look at suffering as bad and we avoid suffering. But just maybe, maybe God has a purpose in our suffering and in our persecution. And just maybe that purpose is that others would come to know Christ. Because I came to know Christ through his suffering and so did you. And Peter is saying, stand firm in that. Stand firm as, as you don't fit in in the world more and more as time goes on. Stand firm as you look like a weirdo to people around you. Stand firm as you look like a right-wing religious nut sometimes to people around you because you can't stop speaking the gospel. Stand firm when you're alienated from friends and family because you won't stop talking about Christ. Stand firm in it, Peter says. In verse 13, he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And who, who is this she who is at Babylon? Well, this is likely referring to the church in Rome, who was also undergoing great persecution at this time. So Peter is saying, your brothers and sisters down the road, they're being persecuted as well. But they send you greetings, right? They, they send you encouragement in your suffering because they're suffering as well. This is just kind of the lot of the Christian life, right? The Christian life involves, it necessarily involves suffering and persecution. So they send you greetings and so does Mark, my son. We're, we're not aware that Paul had a family, so this is probably his son in the faith, most likely. Uh, somebody that, that he was instrumental in bringing to faith in Christ, who is also likely suffering. And then in verse 14, this weird line, greet one another with a kiss of love. And I don't think he's giving us a prescription that, you know, after church today, we all have to give one another kisses of love. But this was just a greeting of the day, right? So he's making a point, greet one another, show some affection to one another. Encourage one another in your suffering. It's going to help me suffer more when I know that you're suffering too. And when you encourage me in my suffering, that's going to help, right? This is kind of a team effort here is what Peter is saying. Show some affection to one another. Greet one another with a kiss of love. We're all in this together. 
And so, so we ought to support and encourage one another as we're in this together. And it might be that I'm suffering right now and you're not, so you can be of great encouragement to me. It might be that we're both suffering together and we can commiserate and encourage each other as we simultaneously suffer. Right? Maybe we're not all suffering the same things at the same times, but are we encouraging each other in our sufferings? Or are we affectionate to one another as the family of the body of Christ? Right? I think Brent talked about not long ago, like being close to the people in the church, some in some instances more so than family members. And we all probably experience that. Right? And this is by God's good and intentional design. And so greet one another with a kiss of love or a handshake or a hug, but, but show some affection to one another as we love and we care for one another. And then Peter ends his letter by saying, peace to all who are in Christ. Right? Maybe, maybe you've seen the, the corny bumper sticker. And sorry if anybody has this on their bumper, but the, you know, no Jesus, N-O, yeah, no Jesus, no peace. And then K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. Like that. There's some truth to that, even though it's a corny bumper sticker. There's truth to that, right? We might be able to figure out in the world how to get along, with one another, but, but we won't know peace, not true peace, not peace in the fullest sense, not shalom apart from knowing Christ. And so it's one of the beautiful things about being found in Christ is that we can know a peace that the world can't know, that the world is incapable, that those who are not in Christ are incapable of knowing. That's part of the message that we have to the world is that you can have a peace that you can't have apart from knowing Christ. Right, the world around us can be falling apart. And in Peter's day, like his world was falling apart. Peter, if you don't know, he, he died on a cross like Jesus, except he was requested that it, would, that it would be turned upside down because he wasn't worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. And it's that guy that's saying peace. This guy that's undergoing some pretty severe persecution saying peace to all of you who are in Christ. Right, Paul, Paul talks about that, that if I live, to live uh, is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul, who was, who was persecuted greatly, to live is Christ. In other words, to continue on in this life means that I can tell all the more people about who Christ is and what Christ has done. To die for my suffering to come to an end, for my persecution to come to an end, means that I get to be with Christ. So there's no lose in the Christian life. It's win-win either way. Right, We continue on in this life to tell people about who Christ is. And when this life comes to an end, we get to be with Christ and we get to fully experience a peace that can't be experienced apart from knowing Christ. And so be encouraged today that your suffering is not for nothing. It's not meaningless. Be encouraged, even though we have an adversary that's trying to kill us, trying to destroy us like a roaring lion, that we can resist him by standing firm in our faith, by looking to Christ. Devil bad, God good stand firm. Father, we're thankful today. Thankful that you love us. Thankful that you are good. Thankful that you are the God of all grace, that you uh, give us things that we don't deserve, that you do things for us that we cannot earn, but that you show us so much grace that we can't even wrap our minds around it. So God, help us to be encouraged by that today. Help us to be encouraged even in our sufferings and in our persecution, that it's not meaningless, that you have a purpose in it. And help us most of all to be encouraged that, that one day all of the wrong things are going to be made right. All of the bad things are going to go away. 
that there will be no more suffering, no more sadness, no more pain when we get to be face to face with you. And help us to be people that look to that day, that look forward to eternity, and that are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ so that others may come to know you. And as we take communion together today, help us to be reminded uh, as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup that you suffered for us, that you suffered so that ultimately we could come to know you as an act of pure grace on your part. So God, help us to be reminded as we've sung about the gospel. Help us to be reminded as we've looked at the gospel in your word and help us to be reminded as we have a visible picture of the gospel in communion today uh, that you love us and that you are so gracious. God, help us to draw near to you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.